You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast with your host, Jonathan Robinson-Lees. Welcome to the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Today's conversation features an in-depth chat with Currajong local Matt Hamilton. As a local gym owner, Matt has a passion for fitness and is a student of his craft. Beyond just the physical benefits, he believes that exercise is essential for positive mental health. Having overcome his own battles after nearly two decades in the police force, Matt is committed to ongoing achievement both personally and professionally. Matt shares his journey from the tremendous highs to the crushing lows on today's episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. This episode contains conversations about mental health. If this is at all triggering for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 and reach out to your network of family and friends. Matt, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Matt, in 2011, you started a physical fitness boot camp, and then in 2015, you opened your gym last round. What inspired the decision to step into the world of physical fitness? So I guess it probably stems from me being a kid growing up in the... uh, action-packed Hollywood movie uh, era of people like Stallone and uh, Schwarzenegger and all of these very physical, I I guess, characters that you you see growing up. And, you know, when you're you're 12, 13 years old and you see all these guys on the big screen that you're idolising as your heroes and all of them have got big muscles, it kind of leads you down this this path that, um, you know, you obviously aspire to be like them. So... All of a sudden, you find yourself in the weight room at that age, and with your little York dumbbell set in your in your backyard, and you you know reading the 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 uh, Muscle and Fitness or Flex magazine, and and watching all those guys, and then yeah, it just becomes I guess part of your part of your culture from there from a very young age, and once you've been exposed to that, it it just becomes a a habit that you you build on over years and years, and, and pretty much started all the way you know, from that age right through to current day, albeit it's, you know, a little harder to get the old body moving nowadays. But, um, yeah, it's been something that I've, I've never really let go of. So I had a, a, you know, we'll dive into this, I guess, a little bit later, but I, I had a change of career. And <clears throat> although physical fitness has always been something I've been pretty passionate about over the years and habitually done for various sports or just for generally keeping in shape, um, it, it was a fairly easy step for me to go from, you know, doing that uh, because it was something I enjoyed to then, you know, teaching that and then opening a facility and, and things of that nature. So it sort of just made sense uh, that it was something that I would move into from there. And you talk about fitness being a part of your life since you were young. What does fitness do for you mentally? Do you find that there's a clear difference in the days that you do and don't exercise in terms of your mental health? <clears throat> Yeah, look, I, I think um, long term, I, I think uh, physical fitness, unlike uh, the best way I could probably describe it is just like when, when you do hard work, hard labour, you, you, you wear your body out or you wear your body down to some extent. I think the difference, the, sort of the defining difference between that and, and physically training um, in, the, in the gym or, or however you're you know, choosing to do your exercise is that rather than wearing yourself out, it kind of builds yourself up. And I think in order to 
keep on top, and certainly in my experience, to keep on top of a uh, balanced uh, mental attitude and maintaining focus and, you know, being able to, if people like to use the word de-stress or something of that nature, I think fitness plays a, a pretty important role in that. Uh, certainly has for me. Um, the other thing that it allows you to do that I guess some people may be able to look is it allows you to set a lot of goals uh, that, you know, don't depend on anything else except you turning up, doing the work and then achieving it. So you're not sort of reliant on other things falling into place or relying on other people to, to make those things happen. And so that, that sense of ongoing achievement, you know, you put the work in, you get yourself a new goal, whatever that might be. It could be a PB on a lift or a PR on a run or whatever whatever it is. You set that goal, you do the hard work, you get you get the goal, you get the reward for you know the dopamine release and all the things that the sense of achievement that that and a sense of conquest that goes with that. And then that I think also aids in your I guess your own observation of how you're traveling in life, you know, it, it bolsters your self-confidence a little bit. And all in all, when you start to add those things up and you do that as part of your, your daily rituals or, or certainly weekly rituals, you do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you start to get a pretty decent reserve of resilience in place, not only physically, but mentally. And you've got those tools that you can, Kind of fall back on when times get a bit tough and just go, you know what? I'm a bad day, nothing's gone right, you know, whatever it might be, work stress, family stress. And you can take yourself away to that little space that, that you know you can achieve in and you don't have to, none of those other things need to really impact on that. And so you can hit those goals there and then that has that carryover, you know. So it, it, I think for mental durability, it's, uh, it's one of the, you know, probably one of the best things you can do. You referenced the ongoing achievement of the physical fitness and it's that intrinsic, that deep desire to always keep improving and keep pushing yourself. Where do you think you uncovered that when you were younger? See, one of my earliest exposures to that was uh, I took up martial arts from a fairly young age and unlike training in the gym where a lot of the, a lot of the progression can be um, you know, your own interpretation of, of how you're progressing. So it might not necessarily be numbers on a bar. So for some people it is, you know, if they're you know, powerlifting or, you know, looking to hit new numbers on a bar, that's fine. It's quite trackable. But for a lot of other people, it's based on how they feel after a, a particular session. Martial arts training is a little, a little different to that. How you feel really is almost of no consequence. You know, if the instructor gives you something to do, you do that. And then um, it, it's really almost, it, it, I wouldn't say it's the opposite of how you feel, but it's certainly your feelings in the matter are, are a long way second. Um, and so if you can, if you consistently <clears throat> are exposed to that type of training, which is, you know, really quite structured and really quite, how would you put it? it it's, it's, designed really to elicit an end goal not really concerned about how you feel in the in the uh, process of that and something about the spartan nature of that and something about that the the hardship that you endure when you go through that process the reward on the back end of that is 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 much much greater than than a lot of people realize and if people haven't been exposed to you know any type of 
um, training that is very structured like that. And there's, there's not a lot of, you don't get a lot of positives on the journey, but you get a lot of positives as you make those, you know, steps of achievement. And it kind of sets you, sets you into a, a mindset where work ethic becomes really the, you know, one of the high priority things, discipline, self-discipline, regardless of how you feel about it, it becomes, you know, rudimentary in nature where you go, you do these things repeatedly. And I think anyone that's ever seen any high-level sports uh, people train realise that quite often, you know, the journey for someone to go from a, you know, a, a, a recreational athlete, let's call it, or a recreational trainer like most of us are, to them becoming a high-level athlete, a lot of the things that they do on a routine daily basis are very mundane and very repetitive. And most people who don't have that um, aspiration to, to, you know, get to the Olympics or to do something of that nature at a very high level, they wouldn't put up with the monotony and, the, and the, what we would term to be sort of boring activities that these guys have to do every day. But it's those boring, small, repetitive activities that allow them then to do the things that, that they can do. And I think when you have done any type of sports or any type of gymnastics or anything where there's this, you know, very repetitive um, nature, you end up having to just sort of steal yourself to the to the the mundane nature of it. You go through that irrespective of how you feel about it. And the end result being that you develop a good work ethic for it, um, providing you don't burn yourself out in the process, which does happen to a lot of people if they do it from too young an age, you know. So I think that just helps drive you to look for a result rather than rather than looking at the short term gratification of each individual workout. The self-discipline that you learned from a, a young age there and it seems to still be part of your day-to-day life. Now, what, what's your motivation? What's your motivation just to keep chipping away and to keep achieving little bit by little bit? Uh, not good enough, basically, <laughs> is, the, uh, is probably if we were to drill down to it and cut to the chase. If I looked at my current career, which is I, I own a gym. Now, I could do what a lot of gym owners do, um, which is they, you know, potentially sit at the front counter, they drum up a really quite lucrative business in respect to, you know, having people come in and pay their gym fees and away they go. Um, They might not know the name of a lot of people that come to their gym. A lot of people will come in, pay their fees, use the equipment and go. Um, The way that I have modelled our gym last round, it's, it's a lot different to that. I'm... A gym owner, but I'm also the, the person that coaches 90% of the classes each week. I know the name of every single person that comes in the door. I know their exercise, you know, history for the most part. I know their injury history for the most part. Um, I know, you know, whether they're married, whether they have kids, what they do for a living, um, you know, what their exercise goals are, what their, you know, current issues are as far as managing injuries or stresses or things of that nature so we have a much more how would you put it um you know we're much more involved in our clients i know i sound like some sort of crazy stalker that hangs around the gym asking people all these questions but it's not like that it's it's basically we share a lot of information we share you know we have uh, you know, before and after training is a lot of casual conversations which lead you into understanding the person, who they are. Because 
despite our best efforts to make this a, a, a singular dimensional thing where someone comes in and, and does a hard workout and goes home, um, if we really want to help these people along, and they, they help me as much as I help them, don't get me wrong, um, then we need to know a little bit more about them because there's the, the nature of, of uh, training um, people and getting them to actually progress and not just come in and spin their wheels is far more complicated than anybody gives it credit for. Uh, and I, I guess what drives, drives me to get better at this is that I don't have all the answers. I, I'm a long, long way short of having all the answers. So when I don't know something, I don't like not knowing something. So then I try my best to come up with a better answer. I'm never going to probably have the, the right answer, but I'm going to have a better one than the one that I've, I've thought through previously. So every day, like this, this morning, same thing. You know, I get, I get to see some people squatting and I, I see a little differential in their squat that wasn't there before and I want to know why that's happened. Why have they changed from where they were to where they are now? What have we changed in the program that might have affected that? What's happened in their daily life? that might have affected that you know did they acquire some sort of a minor strain going to pick something up have they been sleeping badly as they you know there's any number of things that could contribute to something like that and so then it's it's my job if I'm really coaching things properly is to pay attention to those things and then attempt to rectify it and if I can't put them in touch with somebody that can Matt, starting the gym in 2015 as we mentioned how hard was it for you to take that leap of faith not just financially and the traditional risks, but for you to put yourself out there and say, you know what, this is me. This is my new identity. I'm starting this gym. I started training people. Like I've been training people for a long, long time. I opened my first karate school at about 18 years old, I suppose. So I'm now 48. So I've been coaching people for 30 years and probably a little bit, little bit before I, I opened that school, I was coaching as well. So even as a junior, but um, so... All the way through my past career, I was essentially a coach of various skill sets and, and various activities. So coaching people's come fairly natural to me and sort of the physical training side of it was already uh, ingrained in, in me. So it made kind of sense to marry those two skill sets up and, and do what I was doing. But prior to taking the financial leap and, and digging into the gym, I started the journey with... Uh, um, I was in the police for a long time, left the police. And when I made that change, I started just training at the local gym, taking a few clients at the gym there. Um, and then alongside that, I ran an outdoor boot camp in the park behind our current premises. Now, that park was, it was good when we started. We only had a small number of people. I think we started with like maybe three to five people in the park and it was quite good. Anyway, we grew that to in excess of 70 70 people in the space of a couple of years so we would have classes where we didn't have 70 in one class but we would have 70 members and we might have like a you know a 9 30 in the morning class and then a, a, a 5 p.m or a 6 p.m class and we would run that a few days a week but you know between those classes we might have you know 20 people at the at the uh, 9 30 class another dozen at the five o'clock class and then another dozen at the six o'clock class and that would be you know, Monday to Thursday and then like a Saturday morning and a Friday morning kind of thing. And so over the course of maybe two years to three years, that kind of grew to the point where it was like, you know, wet weather was becoming a nightmare. Um, 
lighting and things like we would pay for uh, to use the over. So we had access to the flood lighting, but then we had to compete with football, uh, cricket, other other you know codes using the same area. So we had to sort of work ourselves around that. Logistics of as we were growing, we needed more equipment, so then you're moving more gear around. And it just came by chance that we were on the back end of our oval. There was an old motor vehicle records. And I walked past that and I've been, because I, I never liked the idea of the traditional gym where everything was inside. I really liked the idea of being able to move inside and outside and come up with a training environment that allowed people to not feel like they were in a gym, uh, I guess is probably the best way to describe it and give them a lot of options. So, you know, the idea of going on a treadmill and running on a treadmill, just I, I could never really understand that. I would always, if I'm going for a run, I would go outside and go for a run. I wouldn't sit there and turn over miles on a treadmill. So I wanted something that we could replicate that. And I had a few other things from past experiences that I wanted to try and incorporate into it that wouldn't work in a conventional gym space. So to see this place come up for lease, and um, I, I took my wife over there to take a look at it after I'd looked at it. And obviously, she viewed it with completely different lens than I did. She said, are you effing crazy, I think, was probably the best uh, way to describe it. You've got rocks in your head. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, it'll be right. Like, you know, it's a big space. It's, you know, 44, 45 metres long. It's about 12 metres wide and about nine metres high inside. And then, you know, outside there's another you know, a couple of hundred square metres of space in the backyard, et cetera, et cetera. But I said, oh, it's fantastic. It's perfect. Like, but the place really was a, a bombshell. You know, it had been a wreckage for 30 years and there was, uh, you know, quite a, bit of, uh, quite a bit of work to do to get it up to speed. So the first, I guess, steps for that were, uh, look, I wasn't, I wasn't completely naive going into it thinking, oh, we'll just turn this into a gym and away we go. I knew I dealt with council on quite a number of issues previously, building homes and things. So I went in knowing that there would be some sort of contamination testing and some sort of remediation strategies put in place and all those sorts of things. So thinking I was doing the right thing, get in touch with council, speak to the relevant people there before I take the lease and just say, hey, look, what will I need to do to get this over the line? And then we went through a, quite a bit of a headache in respect to council, you know, changing a few things around. I, I won't go down that path right now, but it, let's say it was frustrating, to say the least. Sunk a lot of money into getting all that done even before taking the lease on. And then we took the lease on after that. So a bunch of contamination testing, back and forth with council. Finally get it over the line with the DA, taking, you know, probably another 12 to 18 months Six months of that was still paying rent on the place. So paying rent on a place that you can't occupy, you know, so it's a tough start. And then trying to fit it out after that. So it's nothing that a lot of business owners haven't gone through, I'm sure. But it certainly, it does really wake you up when you go from paying a very small amount of money to use a park to all of a sudden having to pay, you know, a reasonable amount of rent for a big space and then having all these other outlays for your setup on top of that. So... Yeah, it's, um, it was a challenging process, but at the end of the day, I think it was one of those things that we'd just kind of outgrown the park and I wanted to do more with the place. And so, yeah, so here we are. And since then, we've gone through probably three renovations since I've had the place. Like I, every time I get an opportunity, I change something because I'm not happy with it. So yeah, ongoing work. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media.
even with a base of 70 clients that you referenced there, heading into the gym, was there self-doubt as, as the owner? Was there doubt that this might not succeed, that maybe, like your wife said, that maybe it wasn't the most logical choice to be going to that location? Like, how, did, how did you overcome that self-doubt? Probably the biggest thing I've learned about since being in business, which you never learned before being in business, is that just because you're a good coach, you know, just because you're good with people and you're good at all these sorts of things which you think are the, the kind of the cornerstone or the backbone of running a, a successful business would be good at doing whatever it is you're, you know, supposed to be doing. So, that, you know, people are paying for my coaching. They're paying for, for me to do those things, which I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm going okay there. But what I'm not good at is running a business. <laughs> so uh, essentially all the, all the things that, make a business successful as far as the you know the paying of the bills the managing the rent the managing the expenses the the employees the 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 other things that go along with making a business successful i have really no experience in so for me you know having that it's kind of like yeah you you um you could have, you know, the, the, the person that was the, the, the best at what, whatever field it might be, but unless they can keep the doors open for long enough to, for other people to know that, then they're going to go under fairly quickly. So you end up in this situation where you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants to some extent for the first few years. Um, there's certainly a lot of ups and downs. It's not, it's, to me, business and still today, and, I, and it's probably because I'm still not a very good businessman, but at this point, I see business as you're either swimming fast um, or you're drowning. You know, like the, the, the treading water business, inevitably just I think you end up drowning. So you're either pushing forward, improving, 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 you know, reinvesting, improving and, and building it up. Or you, you know, you're sinking. I, I, I've not found myself any time that I've taken the foot off the gas, tried to, you know, maybe go and do some other things. Like, say, for instance, we built a house in the last few years. So, you know, taking time away to do that and the business suffers. You know, so it's like if your energy is not in it, your attention's not there, your focus isn't there, then you start sliding backwards quite quickly and. Um, some other industries might be a little more, a uh, little more balanced, but the gym industry, in my experience, re- relies a lot on momentum. So things like COVID really have a big impact on the gym industry because, unlike a lot of places that people go to because they like to go there, as in, there's a restaurant. Okay, the restaurant opens. People like to go and get food. They they go in. They enjoy the food. They come back. But say the restaurant shuts, well, they go. Well, that's still kind of their favourite restaurant and away they go because they enjoy the food. They like the process. For a lot of people, sure, you've got our core group of hardcore trainers in here come back no matter what. But if you can imagine that somebody during the course of COVID, they come into the business, they've been there maybe a month. Um, they've just started to get used to exercising. They've built this little routine up and then COVID strikes and pushes them off to the side. So now they're off for three months. And, and then to pick up where they left off, they've lost any momentum that they gained within that first month. So sort of doing the math on it, we figured that pretty much anyone who was off for longer than they were on wasn't coming back anytime soon. You know, so that's sort of the... So if you had 
clients that came in, say we were shut for three or four months, a few clients that came in in that three or four months before you were shut and they hadn't been prior to that, chances are you were going to lose them. And that seemed to be fairly consistent. Albeit we gained, you know, a few new people at the end of it. But I guess to, you know, get to the point, the the business is very much a, a momentum-based business. And if your point of focus isn't there all the time, then, you know, you can go through quite large peaks and troughs if you're not careful. Um, and we have quite a high retention rate compared to a lot of places. You know, I've heard some of the numbers in the gym industry have been quite alarming as far as how many people they lose. Um, we have, you know, probably a 90 plus percent retention rate. So we have clients there that once they come, they seem to stick around for a very long time, which is, which is a good thing, but it's still, yeah, it's still a manager, a, a matter of getting them there, getting them through that first month, which is the, the tough part. And then once they're there after a month, they tend to stay for a while. What is that first month? So tough for them. Is it the, the physical adjustment that they're getting used to? Yeah, look, I think there's a few things. I think a lot of people, it's not even so much the physical, it's the, the busy routines that we all live in. So, you know, I, I don't know about your particular circumstances, but for mine, you know, I have the business. I have uh, a lot of work on this house that we're still in the process of finishing off. I've got like three kids who are all teenagers two of them with part-time jobs, three of them that play sport. So wife works full-time. So you start to put all those things together and you're managing all these, these various things happening simultaneously. Um, and you start to look at the free time that you have and then if all it takes is one little hiccup for your planning or someone else's planning, you know, someone gets sick or someone gets held back at work or whatever it might be, and all of a sudden, the free time that you had gets reallocated for you going to do a pickup or a drop off or a whatever. And so I think people that get into a fitness journey, particularly if it's not been part of their lifestyle before, they set off with these great intentions and week one, week two, they're there three, four times a week and they're going great guns. By the time week three comes around, they're sort of, oh, look, I only got there twice this week. And then week four, they get there once and then gets to the end of that 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 first month and then it's like uh i just didn't get there the week after that and then and they sort of fade away in the background so i think most of the most of the difficulty in it is actually just making a point to prioritize it as part of their life and then once they get that and it becomes habitual then they don't even think about that necessarily it's like well i make time for exercise or i make time for the gym whatever you whatever you you know you're doing um, and everything else gets worked around that rather than the other way around, which is, which is what inevitably happens with new people. They kind of live their life and think they'll just slot the gym in here and there when they can, whereas our the people that are consistent with it just go, you know what, I'm getting up for that 5am class because it's the only time I can get here and I'm going to make that happen. Um, and, you know, we've had even had people that are pretty full on about it where they'll just have a word to their boss and go, hey, look, can I start an hour later? And then I'll work back an hour. And so, you know, just with a, a conversation that they would have been reluctant to have before, but they, they just want to make it part of their life so, so much that that's what they do. And inevitably, you know, that it soon becomes routine and that's their, that's their norm. The one benefit, I guess, of a lot of the COVID stuff has been that we are seeing people that are having an increase in flexibility about how they manage their work, which has had a positive effect on them getting, you know, manipulating their schedule so that they can get to various things. 
Now, you described to me that you see yourself as a coach for everyday people. What are you trying to impart on your clients? What are you trying to pass on to them when they come to the gym? So I guess for the first part, it's not so much of what I'm even trying to impart. I'm just trying to learn about who they are and where they are and what they're, what they're looking for because we don't, I don't run personal training per se. I don't do that anymore. So ours is all in groups. So we have a bit of a rule where we say there's only two new people on any given session. That gives me an opportunity to sort of get to know who I'm dealing with and really not only from a physical perspective, but get a bit of an idea of what sort of person they're like, you know, what sort of coaching uh, do they need? What's going to best suit them where they are? Are there any big sort of glaring obstacles that, that we can identify and easily kind of cherry pick and go, hey, look, you know, I notice... You know, I noticed that uh, you seem to be working really late and you're getting up really early, like you're only getting done some quick math and you're only getting four hours sleep a night. Like, doesn't matter what we're doing in the gym, if we can't kind of address that four hours sleep issue, then we're not going to be doing you any favours. So little conversations about these things start to, you know, you start to see them when you've got enough time to, to actually... Um, get to know your clients and get to know the people you're dealing with. Uh, there could be a bunch of other things with particular, you know, constraints that they might have physically because they've had past injuries or are nursing certain conditions, or they might simply have not exercised in a long, long time. And so you start to go through all these, these things that might impact their progress and, and try and figure out where they are. And once we've figured out where they are, then we can sort of start to steer them in the right direction and give them, give them some, some options that will actually make a positive change to them. So I guess for me as, a, as the coach, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is I'm big on the education side of it. So telling people sort of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And in my experience, really the only people that I know of that have been long-term successful our clients have had some sort of vested interest in the training process itself. Um, that allows them to sometimes, you know, that mundane stuff that we're talking about, if you don't have, you can't see a reason for doing that. You can't understand why you're doing that. And it makes it really difficult to adhere to that type of training protocol because particularly if you come from a training background, which is all just get in, get a quick sweat, you know, get it all done in, in 20 minutes and get out the door. Well, that's okay, but it's a very short-term view of a long-term prospect. So for me, training is not about the session. It's not about, you know, what you get done in this week. It's not about the 12-week challenge. It's not about any of that. Sure, we've run 12-week challenges before, but it's not the, the goal of coming to, you know, last round as a, as a training facility. It's a long-term prospect. We're looking to... You know, for some people that, that, and that means very different things for each person. So, you know, gauging where they are and, and where they want to go really puts a, it puts it into context for you and you can, you can make better decisions to help them than if you don't have that background or you don't sort of pay attention to where they are. So for me, it's about getting to know where they are, who they are, what their goals are. And then trying to find the best path and navigate the help them navigate through that. So rather than me kind of just dictating to people what they have to do, I like to be think of myself a bit more like a a guide or a shepherd or something of that nature where you're just 
you know, you, you're just helping, helping them along the way, but they're going to find their own way. You're just going to steer them, I guess, is probably the best way of describing it. In guiding the clients along, Matt, and effectively helping them unlock their potential both physically and, and mentally, when you do that day-to-day, do you consider that as people, as a society, are we leaving a lot of stuff untapped? Can people really push themselves a lot further than they feel they can? Yeah, look, I think so. Funny enough, some of the small things that we see on a daily basis that that you could, I guess, reference as as to your point right there would be something as simple as as jumping onto something. So let's look at a box jump. I mean, most people know what a box jump is. If if you don't, it's basically you stand on the ground, on the floor, and then you jump up onto an object. Now, as simple as that sounds for a lot of people, there are people out there that have never done that since they were a kid and are petrified of jumping. You know, it's such a simple thing, but they haven't been exposed to it. They never played a lot of sports and, and, you know, perhaps the last time that they did any jumping, they were like, you know, 10 years old. And now we've got them in their mid-40s and we're trying to encourage them to jump up onto something. And we started very small and gradually increase it. But the comments that you get from a client or you, the look they give you is that I never thought I could do that. And that total surprise, that total of something as simple as jumping up onto something, that, that really wakes people up as to, hey, well, if I could do that, now I can do this and now I can do this. And it just sort of it gives them a confidence boost that would otherwise go unseen. And they, they would go through their day-to-day life and thinking about it. And for you know a lot of people, that might not be a big deal, but things like jumping onto things, monkey bars is another one that we see that's completely is one of those situations where people just go, I haven't done this since I was a kid. And they try one or two bars and then let go. And then by the end of the class, they're doing a whole run of monkey bars and they just are quite astounded that they can do it. And they're chuffed with themselves for, for being able to manage that. And I think more than just that particular activity that that then gives them that confidence boost to do it in other things that they might otherwise doubt themselves in. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot in respect to those simple things that we see that people have just written themselves off before they've even begun in things like that. No, I can't do that. I'm, it's almost like they identify themselves as someone who doesn't do that. And then when they're actually able to do that, that almost changes to some extent their identity. Uh, and then if you take it further and you get athletes that you get in that, that are used to training hard and you, you find that you can, you can push them far further than they they believe that they can go. And these are trained, you know, very trained people and you can put them in terribly uncomfortable situations and push them much harder than, than they would otherwise be able to uh, sustain. Uh, so that's sort of the other, end of the, the other end of the spectrum, if you like. But, yeah, to, um, to answer your question, I think that um, there are a lot of things that, that in our society where everything's, you know, instant gratification and instant reward and, the fastest way to something is the best way to something. I think some of the some of those things that get overlooked are, you know, the merits of hard work and the merits of putting yourself into an uncomfortable situation and then, con- you know, conquering that. Uh, there's a lot to be said for, for doing that. And if you do that on a regular basis, soon enough, the uncomfortable is no longer uncomfortable. Matt, you grew up in Glossodia in the Hawkesbury region. What was your childhood like? 
Oh, yeah, so grew up in Glossadia. I think we moved out there in about 1978 or 79 and uh, went to school out there. So it was a quiet country town at that point. There wasn't much as far as, um, you know, I think there was maybe a couple of hundred kids at school and housing. You knew everyone in the street and there was half a dozen houses. And um, so we spent a lot of time, I guess, just out riding push bikes and, you know, in the bush making cubby houses and bow and arrows and slingshots and, you know, just generally carrying on as kids. Uh, be home, you know, before it's dark kind of was the, the, the only real instruction you were given. Played a lot of, you know, different sports and soccer and cricket and football and things of that nature. I wasn't very good at any of it, but we played it anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, just uh, most of my schooling was out that way as well, Hawkesbury High uh, back then, so... It was it, it was good. You made made friends that you still sort of see. I still see some of the friends from from school nowadays. There was obviously no mobile phones or any way of communicating that way. So everything was either a, an awkward phone call in the hallway while your mum and dad are standing next to you, or it's going physically knock on the door and have a real conversation, which is a little different to how our kids nowadays communicate. But uh, all in all, a pretty pretty sedate sort of place to live. Pretty controlled environment. And uh, in respect to what you're exposed to was, yeah, you weren't exposed to a lot of, you know, negative influences out there. It was pretty, pretty quiet, pretty rural. With your teenage kids nowadays, how do you feel about imparting that or encouraging that sense of exploration, the freedom that, you know, we were able to have as kids when things seemed a lot more relaxed? How do you go about encouraging them to just to break new ground and challenge themselves day to day? Yeah, look, it, it is difficult in the social world that they live in now, particularly, you know, having spent a lot of time in the, in the police, you see some, you, you know, you see some things which are uh, less than desirable and you certainly don't want your kids exposed to some of, those, some of those things. And in the social media world that the kids are in currently, their access to things like Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and, and other things of that nature, they can be... I guess, influenced and encouraged by things that aren't real or by people that, that potentially aren't, you know, who they say they are. Uh, and so it's really been difficult because that freedom that we, you know, we took for granted back then of being able to just trust that, you know, the world's a, a, a pretty safe place has in a lot of ways been taken, taken away from the kids nowadays. Now, it's always been of interest as to whether the same risk of threat of all these external factors was around, you know, 30 years ago and we just weren't aware of it or whether it's more proliferant now. But definitely it's one of the things that I certainly wouldn't allow my kids to do the things that I did as a kid. Uh, not to mention we're in a rural area here, a little more rural than what we were. So it's quite... I don't think the kids would fancy the 500-metre walk down the driveway before they can even get onto the road to go and talk to somebody. So geographically, it makes it a little more challenging. But what we, what we have tried to do, like the kids are involved in, are involved in gymnastics for a long time growing up, so, you know, at a, at a fairly high level. So, uh, you know, the oldest was doing, I think, 30 hours a week there at one point. So it's two sessions a day for quite a few days a week and then the other two were doing maybe 20 hours a week or something of that nature so it was a lot of time with gymnastics so they they you know had friends from gymnastics they had friends from school and we did a lot of ferrying back and forth to accommodate those 
you know, those things. They've sort of moved on from gymnastics now and are into a few more team sports, basketball, soccer, these sorts of things. Uh, so that they're gaining, you know, friendship groups there. And then the oldest ones now are, have, um, you know, taken up part-time jobs. So that's got a, another circle of friends. So I think the main thing that we would say to the kids that we have been saying to the kids is, is basically, you know, when you get into these new circles of friends, you, you know, it naturally, if you sort of pull yourself away from that and, and, you know, don't interact and don't mix, you'll, you know, you'll have a hard time of, of, of integrating with these new groups of people. And if you, if you just take a moment to talk to people and find out who they are and relate to them and be friendly, you'll find that, you know, you, you might gain a whole new circle of friends and stick with you for a long, long time. And so they seem to have seem to have taken that on board. They enjoy going to work. Like they don't sort of hang their heads and kick stones every time they've got to go in there. And most of the conversations they have is, is about, you know, friends that they have at work and friends that they have at sport. So I think a lot of the, the, the you know, socially they're, they're coping quite well. I think that's all you can ask for as a parent is try and, you know, hope that they sort of take on board what you're saying and be there when they need to hear it from you sort of thing. So I think a lot of parents, unfortunately, you know, it's convenient to get the kids just to sit on a screen and, and do their own thing. And then, you know, by the time they're 13, 14, 15, they don't want to listen to you because you haven't been there to interact with them up until that point. Uh, so probably the hardest part of, of, you know, getting them to the point where you can, they can trust, you, you can trust them and, and they trust your judgment, take it on board or, or your opinion is to actually spend the, the, the time earlier than that and, and really work with them to cultivate, a, you know, not only a, a, a relationship as a, as a parent, but as a, as a friend and uh, a guide and a mentor. But, you know, also obviously you've got to balance that out with being a bit of a disciplinarian at times when, it, when it's required. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's just finding that sweet spot, I think, currently is, is, is it's not easy. It's tough. I think because this is probably the first we're probably, you know, the first generation of parents that have had to contest with this, you know, social media uh, landscape that we're in at the moment. I, I think it's definitely, it's going to be something that in a few years' time it'll be interesting to see how people will handle it now that they've had the opportunity to, you know, look at the way that we've managed it and seeing if they can't improve on it because I'm sure it could be done better than what we are at the moment. But all in all from our, you know, our kids specifically, they're going okay. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. And Matt, for you at school growing up, what role did it play in your development? Probably, I, I probably um, wasn't as confident at school as what I should have been. I probably didn't step up and take opportunities that were there or put myself out there as much. I was a bit more reserved and a, and a bit, a bit, more I wasn't antisocial by any stretch I always had friends and was fairly well adjusted there but I just didn't back myself as much as I would later in life you know so I wouldn't uh, wouldn't take as many risks I guess at school as what I did later in life so that was that was probably one thing that sort of going hankering back to you know looking back at what I did as a kid compared to what I would let my kids do um, you know when they're involved in sport or when they're given an opportunity to maybe do a, you know, go into a higher class or do a representative thing at sport or something like that. We're always encouraging them to, 
look, have a go. What's the worst that can happen? You, you don't succeed at it this time around. It's been an experience. Whereas I would never have put myself out there and I probably wasn't pushed to do that either, which, you know, we're, we're trying to encourage that. I mean, you're not standing over your kid saying that, like, you know, it's this or, or else, but you're certainly steering them saying that, you know, perhaps this opportunity could lead you to something. If you don't take it, you're not going to know. And that was probably the only thing about my schooling that was negative in respect that, yeah, didn't didn't probably step up enough in that respect. So, um, but other than that, it was it was well adjusted. There was, I had good friends and good social group. Wasn't really bullied. The odd occasion here or there. Didn't really get into too many fights. That was about it, really. Yeah. And what were your career ambitions going through school? So when I finished school, or as I was approaching the end of school, I didn't really have a a clear idea. I thought maybe a PE teacher. Funny enough, because I enjoyed physical stuff and I wasn't very interested in in learning um, and then other than that maybe the police but wasn't really you know 100% front of mind at that point so yeah something of that nature so that they were sort of the two options and then when I left school I uh, I went in and got a job you know uh, check pallets so the the mob that, that built all the blue pallets that you see I, I worked for there straight out of school because my my uncle had a job there, and so as a young bloke, seventeen, I just I took up a job there and for a couple of years. And in the interim, I put my application in for the police and was considering redoing my HSC because, I, like, bluntly, just really didn't try very hard during my HSC, and I wanted a, a slightly higher mark. If I didn't get into the police, I was contemplating going teaching and doing PE. And then a little while after I. Uh, after that, maybe two years later, I got accepted into the cops and sort of went down that route. What drew you into the police? Why did you want to put in an application to join the police force? <clears throat> Look, there's a couple of different things that I didn't... So when I say that I wasn't really bullied, it's not to say that I didn't witness some bullying at school. And I think to some extent, the idea of this, you know, one person standing over another and, you know, kind of uh, just just dominating them like that didn't uh didn't sit well with me uh you know the idea that you could have somebody that just can come in and take what they feel like when they felt like it and i thought well that doesn't sit well with me and if there's something i can do about that then then i'm going to albeit in school i don't think i i don't think i was ever brave enough to do anything about it probably should have but never did and so maybe the police like uh subconsciously was uh a choice to put myself in a position to be able to do something about that type of thing. That's probably the, the you know, the main catalyst for it. And going to the academy the first time, was it what you expected? Were you, were you, were you going into a career that you, you know, was going to play it exactly as you thought it would? Uh, look, the academy, you know, being exposed to that sort of, I guess, paramilitary type environment which was structured the it was okay like i was coming from sort of that martial arts background i was pretty used to being told what to do and pretty used to being uncomfortable so there was nothing on that side of it that was different probably what was different was more being exposed to the the different types of people that you meet down there so coming from a you know pretty much a quiet country location Moving into Chet Pallets, which was in part of Lidcombe Way, and we we dealt with some pretty interesting characters down there, which was probably a 
a good stepping stone before moving into the police because we dealt with a lot of people that were either been in jail or were going back to jail or had lengthy, you know, uh, dealings with the police, drugs, violence, all that sort of thing. And so I was used to working with those guys and conversing with them and, and, and you know, communicating with them at, 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 you know, where they were at that time. And I think that had I have not done that, I would have found the academy a much harder place to be. So that having that sort of cross-section of that balanced kind of home, loving home life to then seeing, you know, these characters that are, that are potentially, you know, down the track would be the type of people that I'd be spending a fair bit of time with when I actually got out into the cops. Uh, and then going down to the academy, you, you sort of, it was more, yeah, just dealing with the different personality types that you would, you, you would see. Because there are quite a mixed, you, people presume that most people that join the police are of a particular mould, you know, they're all the same. That's not necessarily the case at all. You'll get some that are, are very similar and you gravitate towards people that are similar to you. So, you know, most of the people that I stayed friends with after I left the police or, or whatnot, a lot of them are of a similar nature to me, or at least I could I could see where they were coming from and communicate with them well. Um, but there are there's quite a diverse uh, difference in the type of people that apply there, and so you see that at the academy when you first get there. Matt, you spent nearly two decades in the force. Your role in the force is very much protecting the community, yet a lot of the time you are put in harm's way as a police officer. How did you go about? balancing that where it was the need to protect the community but you did need to look after yourself as well yeah so like to be quite honest i spent um i spent you know my early years in the cops probably the first half a dozen or so years penrith windsor kind of out that out west and i went into a training role for uh maybe a year i suppose year and a half uh, and then went into tactical operations after that. And so that was a bit of a different uh, different area to work in in respect to that. Now, as far as dealing with, you know, your own mental well-being and protecting yourself and all the rest of it, physically I never really uh, felt, you know, any huge amount of, of, uh, of you know, discomfort. Um, I was pretty used to being... Uh, in physical sort of confrontations and, and things of that nature. So that side of it came fairly easy. Um, what was probably more uh, disconcerting to me, and, it, and it, it didn't manifest itself until a lot further down the track, was, you know, probably the, the, the mental side of dealing with your own mortality um, and I'm going to say retrospectively, because at the time I never really recognised it. So I went through, you know, maybe 15 years in the cops without having any real, you know, hang-ups with PTSD-related activities or, or anything of that nature. So, yeah, you'd have the odd nightmare. Yeah, you, you know, you'd see something that would trigger a memory that was uncomfortable or um, you would, you know, uh, wake up in a sweat here or there or you would have other issues that you could you know look back at it and go well that was that's likely to have been a, a PTSD related thing but never really had days off with it and sure you go to some terrible jobs where you know people kids all sorts of um things have either been seriously injured hurt lost their lives someone's lost a loved one delivering you know death messages to people and and, and things of that nature 
so there was plenty of, of incidents which play on your mind, but they tended to only do that for me anyway for a fairly short period of time. So, you know, I'd get the effects for the days after, but nothing, nothing bad enough to stop me from going to work or, or anything of that nature. Anyway, one day in, I think it was 2010, I just woke up and was crying uncontrollably for no, no reason that I could, I could, you know, understand. There was nothing that I'd just been to that, that, you know, brought this on. I, I just started, you know, uncontrollable emotions and that, that little roller coaster ride eventually saw me getting out of the police um, day after day of, you know, not being able to get out of bed and having these uncontrollable fits of crying or watching just the simplest thing on TV and just getting very emotional and breaking down over it. And combination between that and extreme anger um, and throwing things around the house and, you know, um, having pretty terrible thoughts about things that you might do to, you know, do to your kids or do to other other people. Um, so th- that combination of that extreme angst, anger, sadness, and that mixing, melting pot, if you want to call it that, of those ups and downs, um, and then the, you know, the, I guess, antisocial behaviour, if you want to call it that, where you just withdraw completely and, and don't want to talk to anybody about anything. So you sort of go through this roller coaster ride of of that, and then add some medication to the mix, which is how they they generally you know treat things like that, whether it's antidepressants or whether it's some sort of a mood stabilizer or something. And so you go through you know maybe a few months of that, and um, it's not until you kind of come through the other side of that you can loosely go back and and maybe identify these points along your career path that had led you to you know recognizing that hey. You know, that was, that was something that really impacted me. But at the time, I never recognised that as impacting me the way that it did. And I still, to this day, don't know whether if you were to go back and try and address that at that time, whether that would be productive or unproductive. There's a lot of people, a lot of, you know, people potentially in the, you know, industry that, that would think that, you know, hey, if we deal with these things as they come along, then we can manage them and they don't manifest themselves as these large problems down the track. I don't know whether that works. And the reason that I say that is being exposed to those types of things um, on a regular basis isn't, isn't normal, isn't, you know, isn't what the human conditions sort of designed in my experience anyway, not designed to tolerate. And so I often wonder that if you take that armor off somebody, you take that ability to just deal with that and move on, albeit they probably haven't really dealt with it, but manage it at the time and then move on. Would you just see people exiting the police far earlier? Sure. Their mental health might be intact a, a little better because they haven't been exposed to as much, but would that really deal with, you know, having police long-term, you know, career coppers or, you know, any other emergency services, I guess, for that matter, people that are exposed to those types of things, would that, you know, dealing with it as it come along, would that, would that then have the impact that, hey, we just lose them earlier or would they sustain in the career, go on and on and on and not have the, you know, psychological trauma that a lot of people have at the, at the tail end of it? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that anybody has a good answer to that. So I think that a lot of people just have difficulty recognising the signs 
or recognizing that they are in trouble until um, they let that let that go. And then once they let it go, they know they're in trouble then. And I've spoken to quite a few friends of mine. Actually, I just got a call the other day about a friend of mine who's just gone um, out from discharged. And uh, he was in the same situation where he just woke up one day crying his eyes out. No explanation, no rational explanation for it. And buckets full. That's it. Where did you seek help? That first morning when you woke up uncontrollable crying, then everything that came from that, where did you first reach out and seek help? So I basically um, tried my wife, first of all, uh, albeit like she was in the, she's in the police. So she has a, a pretty reasonable understanding of, you know, what the job entails and all the rest of it. She's living it. But where I was at the time was a little bit of a different section. So if you can imagine the tactical operations, I don't know whether you know anything about it, but it's kind of the, it, it's the SWAT team. It's all the, the, the guys in the black pajamas that run around doing that sort of thing. So as you can imagine, it's a very testosterone driven place. It's a very, you know, back in the day, the, 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 the briefings used to be, has anyone got anything to cry about or something of that nature? You know, uh, that, that was kind of the, the attitude towards it. And people might scoff at that and go, oh, that's terrible, you know, how does anyone do that? But I'm still of the belief that once you start letting that type of um, mental process be voiced amongst the troops, once you start letting that get into your system, it, it does make you wonder whether you're going to be then competent, confident enough to be able to do the work that they're asking you to do because you can't second-guess yourself in that particularly in that role, um, there's, a, you know, there's people's lives that are, that are at stake. And if you stop to consider how you're feeling about something, then potentially you won't put yourself in harm's way to do the work that needs to be done. And so there's, there is that fine line there. But the bottom line is, is I, I reached out to my wife first. Um, I was told work that I, I needed to take a little time. They were okay. Like they weren't, you know, it was kind of back then, no one really talked about it. And the, the, the rules, the operating procedures, I think, for them at that point was they had a point of contact and they wouldn't call you unless, um, unless they needed to do what they call like a well check or a welfare check on you and just kind of get that out of the way. I think it's improved since then. But back then it was very tick the box, make sure someone's chatted to him and then move on. But other than that, don't call them because you might trigger their PTSD. The downside to that is that when you don't have people contacting you, you feel like you've been ostracised and nobody cares. So it's a very awkward situation for everybody involved. The, the people who are off feel like they've been neglected and the people that are still working there are in a position where they go, well, I don't know if I want anyone, you know, should we contact them or not? Like it's, it's, it's not a clear cut yes or no and I think it would vary depending on who's doing the contacting, depending on the circumstances of each individual. So I think it would be a difficult... I certainly don't blame the police thinking that I had terrible practices. In some cases, I've, I, you know, I've seen uh, examples of terrible practices for sure, but I think they're placed in an awkward situation as an organisation to manage that properly. And I don't... It's one of the reasons that I don't think it can be well-managed in respect that if you keep putting people in harm's way and you keep putting them in a situation where they're going to have to deal with that, it's, some people are going to break at different points. And it's almost an inevitable conclusion, I think. Uh, after speaking with the wife, I, I you know, chatted to the GP, 
to be quite honest, he wasn't very uh, empathetic about the whole situation. wasn't great. Um, it was okay, but it was just kind of, you know, pick your socks up, put your shoes on and get going kind of thing. Uh, and obviously that wasn't going to happen very easily for me. Um, and it's not like I wasn't the person that had taken a long time off. I wasn't the person that had a lot of, you know, disgruntled encounters with bosses and was looking for some, you know, way of, of uh, you know, exiting the police or anything like that. I loved the place that I worked and I was, you know, uh, basically just uh, in the throes of uh, sergeant's promotion and, and, you know, had all things were going swimmingly as far as my career was concerned, but I just couldn't do it anymore. And, um, yeah, so I ended up, uh, ended up leaving. And that was, uh, after that, they assigned me a, a, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. In between those two, what, to be quite honest, I don't know that that did me a lot of good either. Um, other than time and then me really coming to terms with where I was and who I was and what I was doing, I, I think that that was the only, the only real thing that, uh, that allowed me to move on and, and kind of think lucidly. Um, the sooner I got rid of all the, the, the drugs they were giving me, the better. You know, the, a lot of the antidepressants and things of that nature really just put me into this state of numbness, I suppose. No highs, no lows, but unable to really process anything either. So uh, until I was ready to sort of, you know, step up and, and, and kind of deal with my current situation, I was just, yeah, wasn't really making any forward progress. I started to, at that point, started to sort of build our house, uh, not knowing that it was our house. I started um, doing some timber framing, which was just old school, you know, big heavy um, railway sleepers and then cutting timber joints in them. So the old mortise and tenon kind of joints where you hammer them together with a wooden peg and all that sort of gear. And that was very, that was actually pretty cathartic. You know, I spent hours and hours and hours doing that. And the sense of achievement that came by just doing that process completely alone each day, um, I think in some ways was the, well, that, that point of focus and just keeping me, you know, productive over that period of time allowed me to kind of settle back into something that resembled um, routine, uh, sort of, reacquaint myself with some sort of you know identity that I, I felt like I'd lost um, over the, the the year or two prior to that uh, and just allowed me to kind of move forward from there so yeah that was the, so the best remedy for me was you know productive manual work on my own but everyone's going to be a little different I think. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. Do you have advice for other people, Matt, whilst everyone's case is unique and, as you say, everyone's going to find the thing that works for them, is there anything you would pass on to someone who is going through a similar, similar situation where they're, just, they're not coping, the drugs, as you say, aren't working? What would you pass on to them to try to just help them get through that first period? So, look, there's the, 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 probably the, the thing that I would look at that was equally as debilitating as the actual PTSD itself was the loss of identity. And a lot of people don't kind of equate that. They don't understand that a lot of people that go into the police or any career, or, or, you know, I don't know about other careers, but certainly in the police, 
a lot of people go there with the idea that they're going to be career policemen. And so when you're, you know, when you're in your 30s or your 40s and you get, uh, you know, you have to exit that career, that creates a real identity crisis for you. And albeit that the PTSD is front and centre and sort of running the show at that point, that's lingering in the back of your mind. So that's adding to that, that bucket of stress that you've got every day about what am I going to do now? Who am I now? Where do I go? What do I do? And that really starts to, I think, to almost overtake any of the, the symptoms that you have in respect to the PTSD. Sure, you, you know, when you exit, I don't know what it's like exactly now. I think the scheme's changed. But when you exit, they, they would give you, you know, a, a bit of money to go and, and that type of thing. So, you know, financially, you're okay for a little while, but it's not the financial impact of it that's the issue. It's, it's what, you know, you can go and get another job earning $100,000 a year or whatever it might have been when you were in the police, you'll eventually can get one of those. But it's just the, it's, it's the notion that, hey, this is what, this is who I, I attach my identity and, and myself to being a policeman. And most, a lot of police, a lot of their friends are police just due to the shift work and the, and the environment. So their entire world is centred around this, this place and this occupation. And then when they can no longer do it, all of a sudden there's this big gap, this big hole. So I would say to them in the short term, look, you, you do whatever you need to do to get through that initial period. And once you can start to think lucidly and start to um, get some sort of traction, uh, you know, hopefully without the drugs or if it is with the drugs, at least maybe they're, they're in a... a position where you've got them well balanced and they're not over they're not just numbing everything then start to think thinking of yourself as not as a like don't attach your worth to the occupation you know you're you you're worth more than that job is um and for people that have exited they'll know they're worth more than the job is because really unfortunately up minus a handful of people you are a number on a piece of paper and that's it's an unfortunate thing to say but it is the reality of you know, you're, you're just another number on a piece of paper and when you go, they'll be like, oh, this guy was awesome or this person was awesome. We're never going to replace them. And six months later, they won't know, you know, they won't know who you are. You're just a number that was gone. Oh, yeah, he left and we've got so-and-so now. So, unfortunately, the, the people, because they're passionate about it, they want to do well at the work, they attach all this, this level of importance to the job that isn't perhaps you know, real, the importance should be on themselves. You know, that, that point of focus is you're important. You're capable of well more than, than just being a policeman. There are other things that you'll be good at. And then I guess the follow-up from that is just find something that gives you as much, that, that you have as much interest for, as much love for as what you did when you were doing the other work. And then that'll, that'll allow you to step into something that's, you know, productive. Um, and for some people, that's just, hey, look, I love my family and I want to spend more time with my family. Or I love, you know, w whatever it is, I need to get retrained in this. Well, I would say go to, the, go to the extent of getting that done, you know, while you can. Don't theorise about it. and Don't sit there on your hands thinking about, oh, I really wanted to do this. It, just go and do it because it's, if you go into another career which is just, you know, the, the, I mean, because the insurance companies that deal with you and, and all the, the people that are trying to get you rehabilitated, obviously they can't put you back into the police. So, like, 
to give you an idea, if you get a, an injury in another career, more often than not, particularly if it's not a psychological injury, they'll try and reintegrate you into another role within that workforce. But with police, obviously, or fireys or, or, or ambos, or whatever it might be in the military, if it's a PTSD-related incident or, or, or a diagnosis, they, they can't reintegrate you into a similar line of work. So you're kind of faced with a whole new... You take all that work that you might have slid straight into and, and push that aside, and then you have to find a... A new stream of a new stream of work, and so my advice would be find one that you're passionate about, something that you've got a real interest in, and then do whatever you got to do to get into that industry. Because if you do it earlier rather than later, otherwise you'll bounce around, you'll get a job at Bunnings, you'll get a job, you know, labouring somewhere, or you'll get a job doing this, none of which makes you very happy. Then you're faced with not only are you in a job that doesn't make you very happy. But your face was still this identity crisis of, well, what have I achieved now? I've got nothing to achieve. I'm in this, in this job, which I don't really like. I had to leave the job that I loved. I've got these psychological issues. All of these sorts of things, you know, grow to, to make it worse than what it needs to be. Matt, how do you identify yourself nowadays? Now that you're out of the police force, is, is it career-based? Is it family-based? How do you identify yourself? Yeah, so it's a bit of all of it. I don't really, I, funny, funny enough, one of the things that I don't try and do anymore is label myself as, as anything. Um, and I think that's come from having so much of an attachment on what I used to do as being the, you know, sole focus of, of, of my life. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I don't really need to do that anymore. I'm just... Uh, I'm just a, a middle-aged dad who's trying hard. That's that's kind of it. Having to own a business and uh, and be a father and, and and a husband and a a person who's building a house and a person that's that's running a, a gym and you know that that's kind of it. I don't really have a you know. I like to think of myself as a coach as you know primary, but that's that's you know it, obviously. My family's super important and, and, you know, the other things that we do day to day that, to make all that work is the, is the practical side of it. So to really pigeonhole it down to one thing or to describe it in one word, I, I try not to do it, to be honest. Now has fatherhood changed your perspective on life, Matt? Um, there's been a few things. So it's hard. Uh, it's really hard to be a good dad. It's, it's if you allow yourself to be a lazy dad, and I don't mean lazy by, hey, you know, I don't work much anymore or anything like that. I mean working at being a dad, which is different to, hey, I'm a dad, I go outside and I mow the lawns and I look after the house and I do all these things. That to me comes easy. And, and you know, some people have difficulty maybe getting up and doing that outside of their normal work. but. I don't have an issue with that. What I struggle with probably more is really spending quality time with your kids and not, not having those interactions which are simply us sitting on the lounge watching TV or us, you know, them on a screen and me on a screen and we happen to be in the same room. That's not an interaction with your kids, you know. So having meaningful interactions and, and doing things like that is really difficult, particularly when they get to the point where they're making their own decisions about, you know, what they're doing and where they're going and, and who they're seeing and all these types of things. So as they get into that, those years where they're, they're, they're really making some choices of their own accord, 
then, you know, not only is it you having to find the time to make that connection, but it's them having to agree to find the time to make that connection. And so both of you have to come together. And it's not very cool for a teenage kid to go, hey, yeah, I'm going to hang out with my dad and we're going to go and shoot some basketball hoops out the back there on a Saturday afternoon. They're like, hell no, I want to be on Snapchat with one of my friends or I want to see my boyfriend or I want to do this or that. So just finding that side of it is, is tough, like really getting into, you know, having real interactions with your kids and, and making that a priority can be difficult when you've got a whole long list of other things that you want to try and get achieved. Matt, do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves as people? Do you think the path is laid out and we just live it or that every decision we make shapes where we end up? Okay, so that's a really good question. That's an interesting question. All right, so I would say that I would say that you are perhaps given some skill sets by nature of some sort. Some people may not find them very early in life, but some others will. And so things that you will be really comfortable, comfortable with and naturally drawn to and gravitate to, I think you'll be, you'll be kind of handed those. And there might be a number of those that you have available to you. And then for those that become really successful at something, I think they are the ones that marry up the effort you know, and the creativity that goes with those natural skill sets and then align those two things. And I think that's where you start to see people that are, that are you know, very successful in a particular industry or very successful at, at being, a, you know, a really good parent or whatever it might be, whatever their success is, I think that they're marrying those two things up. So I don't think that you're necessarily completely one way or completely the other. I think that you, for the most part it's kind of, I think most people gravitate to something they're naturally good at and then whether they decide to work when they get there, you know, that perhaps makes the distinguishing features between someone who's really good at something and someone who is, you know, oh, I find that pretty easy but never really pursued it. Um, so I think when you marry those two things up, that's where you get the, you know, the, the people that are really good at what they, what they do or, or really admirable in a particular field or something of that nature. So a bit of both is my answer. And it has been an incredible journey for you to this point, you know, with some tremendous highs and some challenging lows as well. As you said, you've got through a tough couple of years with the gym um, here in 2022. What's next for you, Matt? What's next on the horizon for you as a person? We're still, you know, our, our, our ranch at home, I guess we'll call it our ranch because it looks a bit like a ranch. Our, our place uh, where we live, our, our home is, is pretty important to us. And we, you know, we spend a lot of time here as a family. Uh, together and we're, you know, we're, we're still at the tail end of this long drawn building process because some moron gets all these ideas that he keeps wanting to renovate the gym in between time and that slows things up. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll get that finished or to the point where we're able to actually enjoy it rather than working on it. So I think that's, that's probably up there. Uh, the kids uh, looking at them you know, getting their licences, we're teaching one how to drive at the moment so that that, you know, middle teenage years of the kids, I guess, potentially looking to go out on their own adventures and, and us having to navigate that landscape will be interesting. Um, and then career-wise, I think, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm a student at heart when it comes to being a better coach. Like, 
a lot of people who get into the gym industry, as I said, either want to do it from a business perspective or want to do it as because they were a former you know, athlete or, or interested in their own training. I'm, I'm really just a student. I'm trying to be a better coach. So if I can, you know, if I can hone in on that and really, really get that to, it's nowhere near where I want it to be as far as a, 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 if you want to call it a finished product is concerned. I don't think it ever will be, but um, yeah, probably my drive to be a better coach is is one of the, the, the big things on my list over the next few years. So I'm hoping to be, see some big changes there. And finally, what's the best way for people to check out the gym and, and to get in touch? Yeah, so probably the best way is just to check us out on social media, um, check us out on our website, get in touch with us uh, via there. My phone number's plastered all over our uh, website. If you just type last round uh, gym into Google, it'll, it'll come up as one of your first searches. Um, you can check that out. You can check it out on Facebook or Instagram. You'll see some clips of some of the things that we do there. Uh, and then other than that, getting in contact uh, with me on my uh, mobile or via one of the inquiries on the website, that's, that's probably the easiest way to go about it. Matt, thank you for sharing your very real and raw story on the Passion and Perspective podcast. Wishing you all the best. Thanks very much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast. The Passion and Perspective podcast is made in loving memory of Katie Margaret Lees, who truly lived with passion and perspective.